You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. You can open up your Bible to the book of John, chapter 14. We are going to open there and start in verse 15 here in just a minute. But um, before we do that, and while you're finding it... Um, Pastors and I have wanted, been wanting to share a little bit with you as a church family about something that we're calling our growth budget this year. We mentioned it a couple months ago at a members meeting, and then we've not really taken time to explain it. But with last week being a week to formally install me as the lead pastor here, we thought this would be a natural week to share some of that and what we're thinking behind it, at least briefly, and then follow up with it in the weeks to come. But I want to say first, thank you again for last Sunday. I felt so incredibly honored, like it almost brought me to tears a few different times to feel in various ways your all's love for me and my family and your support of me, and it just gave me excitement increasing uh, for what God has in store for us uh, in the years ahead. And one of the passages that has been coming to my mind over and over that I've shared with the pastors and shared with some of you, even as I think about the future of our church and what we would like to see it become, is a short little verse in the book of Acts. It's Acts chapter 2, verse 39. Uh, Peter, the apostle Peter, said this. It was at the end of a sermon that he gave about Jesus and, and what he had done and how he'd been crucified and raised from the dead. And people are saying, what do we do with that? How do we respond? And Peter said this to them in Acts 2. 39 he he said that there's this promise of forgiveness and of the holy spirit and he said the promise is for you for your children and for all who are far off everyone whom the lord our god calls to himself so he said that the promise is for you all who hear it and believe it but it's also for your children and it's for all those who are far off the people in the nations of different ethnicities and religions who've never heard of this savior it's for them as well and so there's been a growing desire there's always been but just an increasing desire in my heart to see our church minister to both of those categories of people to the children among us whether in our families or the community we have around here and to the nations to see our church be a continual sender of people to the nations to take the good news where it has never gone before and that is at the heart of god and i I would love to see our church be a church that increasingly ongoingly uh, is reaching both the nations and the generations and we do well at that already i'm not trying to imply that we don't do that i think our church's heart beats for those but we don't want to be content with the status quo of what god just has done already or is doing now as god's people we want to see him work in greater measure through us to see more young people reach for the gospel to see more people groups and tongues and tribes of people get to know the savior that we have gotten to know and so we've set up this year what we call two different types of budgets we've set up what we call a base budget which enables us and you can track along with these on the back of your bulletin week by week as we go through our fiscal year we have a base budget which will enable us to do what we have been doing which is great uh, which is wonderful and so we've budgeted enough money to be able to support the people we're already supporting and and to fund the ministries that we're already funding but we would love to see our church grow and expand in this year and in years to come in those two particular ways and ministering to the generations among us and then ministering and taking the gospel to the nations so what we've also done this year and what i want to share real briefly with you about is we've set up a growth budget uh, which is going to be about sixty-five thousand dollars more over our fiscal year than that base budget and as that for those funds come in as we give towards that as a church family we have particular ways we'd like to spend that money and to use it to in the short term in this year ahead to invest in ministering to the generations among us within our church and in our community but we also want as we give sacrificially towards that and expand our base of giving as a church we want to have eyes to the future to be able to send more men and women to the nations there's awesome things going on where god is stirring up in people's hearts in our church that are in this room right now i won't point them out to embarrass them but uh, maybe i should at some point maybe i will at some point but not now but men and women who have a heart to take the good news to the nations and going takes giving like and if we want to send these men and women we have to it comes from us it's enabled by us and the taking of what god's given to us and sacrificially pooling our funds to say we want to see the gospel go to more people 
Like just like it came here and came to us, we want to see it go to more people. And so we'd love this year to use as that extra money comes in. I, I trust and have confidence as we give and exceed that base budget that as we do, we'd like to make spends on things to improve our ministry to kids. There's a seating arrangement that we've looked at for our kids' ministry, even in the room that they're right at right now being taught that would enable us to be able to minister to them well and to utilize in our children's facilities. There's video equipment that we'd like to be able to use to minister uh, by filming our sermons and not live casting them, but sharing clips and things like that with the younger people on social media in the years ahead and get the word of God to them in unexpected ways that may never come here. Uh, we'd like to be able to expand our swing set area and make that nice and have an, even an open-air pavilion out there. Not huge, but something that groups could use with picnic tables and a grill to be able to gather together as groups and to invite people from the community to come. I mean, there's other things we'd even like, ultimately, I, I'm, I would be a big proponent of this if the funds come in, to be able to purchase a van, a vehicle that we could use to, our youth group goes on trips all the time. I heard an amen from our youth director on that. Uh, <laughs> But uh, to enable us to, when we do trips, whether it's the youth group or to send people to minister with sister churches or to go to, we're hoping to start establishing a base with a migrant ministry up near Benton Harbor. Like, we'd love to be able to send people by those and use what our church already has to do that. And even to minister to people locally in trailer parks. We could pick up children or families to come to worship with us or men and women from cardinal services that can't come and worship. We'd love to be able to do that. But all of those spends that we could do in the next year for Require us to give and the sending of missionaries certainly requires giving from us as a church family so i want to encourage you if you have not been a giver financially in our church i would encourage you to start uh, to, even if it's starting small the lord calls upon us to take what he has given to us economically and in some measure out of a cheerful heart to give that to his purposes and i would call upon you to start giving if you never have and if you're in the group of us among us who gives, but you give very sporadically or maybe once in a while or once a year towards the end of the year, I would call upon you to start giving consistently, to make it a pattern of your life, to reflect this is a priority for me. This is just like I pay certain bills every month. I'm not paying for a service here, but I want to invest my funds. I want to invest what God's given me into the advance of the gospel to the generations and to the nations. And if you're in the large group of us who give regularly, uh, I would encourage you, and my family's even talking about doing this, to increase even incrementally your giving. Let's say like you give $300 a month. Could you increase that by 10% of that and give 330 Or if you give 700 could you give 770 I was talking with one of our deacons who tracks along with these things. And we, he was saying that 90% or so-ish of our funds that come in as a church are from that category of people regular givers and that's a lot of money we're giving already and so I, I am grateful for that god is grateful for that but it also shows us if each of us just incrementally increase we'd be able to get all of these things and fund multiple missionaries like that like it, it's among us and we haven't so i'd encourage you to talk as a family or if you're an individual to think how might be ways even incrementally i could increase my giving in the years ahead. And we want to celebrate these things as those funds come in. We'll keep you up to date on how those are going, what God's enabling us to do by your giving, by my giving uh, into this fund. But I'm excited about that. We'll share some more about that over email, especially with members this week. But wanted to share a bit about that with you and, and plant that seed of thought in your heart and let the Spirit do what He will and, and thinking about giving uh, from what He has given to you. I want to open the word with you, John chapter 14. We're going to start in verse 15, and we're going to go all the way down to the end of this chapter. Uh, John chapter 14, verse 31 will be where we're in. And if you haven't been here, uh, we've been going through the gospel of John. We've taken some short breaks, including last week. But we're up to the point of the story that John recorded. He was one of Jesus' disciples who was with him all the time. Uh, and he, we're up to the point in the story, and it spans a few chapters, where this is the night before Jesus was to be arrested, the night before he was about to be crucified and hung upon the cross and die for our sins. John gives this extended account of the things Jesus was saying, the things that were on his heart that he was conveying to his disciples that night. And these are things that must have been of great importance to him and urgency to him. And so we're going to read, start in verse 15. And as you follow along, I want you to try to note as much as you can as we do, and then we'll go back through it, the different ways that Jesus himself talks about the members of the Trinity. 
the way he talks about God the Father, the way he talks about himself as God the Son, and the way he talks about the Holy Spirit. Because that's going to be what he's emphasizing here and what we're going to see and think about as we walk through this text ourselves. So follow along with me in your copy of the scriptures, John chapter 14, start at verse 15. Jesus said this, he said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, that's an unfortunate name for that guy, by the way. So there's a different disciple, not Judas, who just left. Judas said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I've spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away. And I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the word of God, and may the Lord bless the preaching of his word. As you think about the Trinity, I'm not sure what comes to your mind. Some of us love thinking about Father, Son, and Spirit. It's something we study, we think about, we process. Many of us, though, probably uh, want to tune out when we start talking about the depths of the Trinity and how they relate to each other and what their functions are, and it just gives us a headache to try to think about. Uh, And so we may be tempted to not. Uh, But there's an author named Sinclair Ferguson uh, who, as I've been doing some readings with the elder candidates, uh, even over this last month, we were reading about the Trinity of all things. And Sinclair Ferguson, in one of the books that we were reading, said this about even this very passage. He said, I've often reflected on the rather obvious thought that when his disciples were about to have the world collapse in on them, Our Lord spent so much time in the upper room speaking to them about the mystery of the Trinity. If anything could underline the necessity of Trinitarianism for practical Christianity, that must surely be it. And when when we read that, all of us were struck by that this month, thinking, man, this is what we're reading in the Word. And that seems strange to us, that right as Jesus was coming up to the cross and his death and his departure to go back to the Father, he spent so much time, we'll even see more in passages to come, talking about himself and God the Father and the Holy Spirit that they were going to send. And Jesus knew that his disciples were about to face a whirlwind of difficulty and, and complicated scenarios as he would die, as he'd be laid in the tomb, but what he points his disciples to and, and telling them to, that he's going to leave them peace, he says, and to, to not let their hearts be troubled or afraid. What he points to, at least in this section, is to the relationship that he has with God the Father and with God the Holy Spirit. That is what he points to. And he's not trying to ground their peace and their comfort and their stability in the lack of suffering or the removal of problems or the calm of their life, where he is pointing to them is to the sweet relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit, and saying that they can be part of it. 
And so that's what I want us to, to see from this text today is that we, all of us, are invited into the loving relationship of the Trinity. Uh, that, that we are invited into their loving relationship and we're to respond to them, to respond to Father, Son, and Spirit with loving belief and obedience. That's what we see in this text. So I want to start first in this passage by uh, putting some pieces together that can show us the loving relationship of the triune God, of Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus, nowhere in here, nowhere in the Bible do we find some sort of detailed, just systematic theology type of discussion of the Trinity. We're always seeing little glimpses of it in verses here and there. But this section of Scripture is rich with those things, with details and nuances and statements about how they work together and how they relate that I want to show you uh, from this text. And so... In the Bible, we see from the very beginning that there is one God, right? You see that emphasized over and over and over in the Scripture in the Old Testament, that there is one God. He alone should be worshipped. That is stated clear as day. Yet you see as time goes on, you see little glimpses of it in the Old Testament, but with the coming of Jesus into the world, you start to see very clearly that there's at least a distinction within God of God the Father and God the Son. That there's at least two persons in this one being. And that's mysterious to us. But you see it come true in the, in the birth of Jesus. And the, what he says about them. But now in this point of the story. As Jesus is getting ready to ascend back to the Father. It starts to become increasingly clear that there's a third person. That, there, that there's the Holy Spirit. Who is part of the Godhead. Who is a person within God. That they are going to send to God's people. And so there's this mysterious reality that is embedded in Scripture, but it becomes more and more and more clear that there is one God, but three equal but distinct persons within God. And we don't experience that on any level in our our lives as human beings or in our world, but that is how God reveals himself to us. And so you see them each in this passage, don't you? So I want to show you a few things about how the Father, Son, and Spirit relate to each other. And if anybody would know this, it's Jesus. John's not making this up. This is Jesus, one of those persons within God, saying this is how we function. This is how we relate to each other. The first thing I think you see in this passage is that you see that they're united with each other. Now, look at verse 20, for example. If you look there, Jesus is talking about how he's going to return to the Father. But the way that he says it, speaking of this after he's raised from the dead and goes back to him, he says that in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. That later part we'll look at in just a few minutes. But note that he says that he is going to be in his Father. God the Father is not a physical being. It's not as if physically Jesus is somehow going to be inside God the Father. This is a way that he is saying when he is returning to the Father that there is going to be a union, a uniting of them, a restoration of what they enjoyed in eternity past. That there is a a link, a bond that is indescribable other than him saying, I'm going to be in him. Again, there, there's a union that's there. If you look in verse 24, Jesus says, Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And then listen to what he says. He says, The word that you hear, he's just been talking about his words, is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And so Jesus is even saying of himself, the very words that he speaks, in a very real sense, are God the Father's words. They're they're the things that God the Father is speaking through him, through a human being, to his disciples. There's this unity that is among them. Another thing you see about the Trinity within this passage is that they cooperate with each other. That they work in sync, in lockstep with each other. Look at verses 16 and 17. You see each of them mentioned here. Jesus, God the Son, says, I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. And so you have the son asking the father to send the spirit to his people. And that's how it works. They they work together. It's not as if they're asking for something that the other doesn't want to do. They're working together, even in the sending of the spirit. If you look at verse 23, excuse me, Later in the passage, you see that when Jesus talks about uh, him and the Father coming, and it is in verse 23, it's in the second half of verse 23, he says that my Father will love him, and no, he says, and we will come to him 
and make our home with him. And he's talking about himself and God the Father and how they are going to, in a sense, come together to dwell with God's people and to even dwell in God's people. It's not as if one of them's doing it and the other's not. And then you see similar language in verse 26. It says that the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said. So you, again, you see that they're working together, that the Spirit's the one doing it, the Father's the one sending him, but he's going to come in the name of Jesus. So we see they're united. We see that they're cooperative. We also see, though, and this is important, that they delight in each other. Because we sometimes cooperate with people that we don't like, correct? We might even work well together with people we don't like. But you see even glimpses here of how the members of the Trinity delight in each other, that they enjoy one another. Look at verse 28. Jesus is talking about how he's going to return to the Father that he came from. And he says, you heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. And he says, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced. So that's the expectation he has of them. They'd rejoice because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And so he has this longing that he wants to go back and be with the Father, to be united with him. He's, it's like he's gushing with love for the Father and saying, guys, why aren't you excited for me? Like, I get to go back and be with him again. I get to go and return to heaven from whence, whence I came. And it's because God the Father's there. And he, he's rejoicing in him. He's delighting in him. And the last thing that I'll mention that you can see about the Trinity in this passage is that even within the Trinity, there's this obedience and love that they have for one another. You can see that at the very end of this passage where Jesus says, I do as the Father has commanded me. So he's submissive in a sense to God the Father, obeying him. So he says, I do as the Father commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Like he wants there to be no mistaking. He loves God the Father. And there's an assumption then embedded in that, that he is loved in return. And that the Spirit as one with them is loved in return and vice versa. They love one another. They are united. They cooperate. They delight in each other. And they love one another. It's this sweet, awe-inspiring thing that we start to get little glimpses of from one of these people themselves, Jesus, about how they relate, how they work together. It is a glorious, glorious thing. There are other religions that will try to teach that there are multiple gods. Uh, Think of Greek mythology if you want to go ancient world. Or think of more current day things like Hinduism. Things like that. There's this belief embedded in many religions that I think is a distortion of Satan of the real truth that there are multiple persons within God. But there's this belief that there are actually multiple gods. And often what you see in those religions is that those gods are at odds with each other. Uh, that they're rivals with each other, that they're seeking to, to combat each other, outdo one another, get more followers in their camp. And we see the, in these false religions this idea of gods that are rivals. But in the scriptures and how Jesus himself speaks of God, speaks of himself, we see there's one God, but there are three persons within that God, and there is no division within them. There is no rivalry there's no anger, there's no jealousy, there's no uh, any division within them. There's this beautiful unity and cooperation and love and delight that has existed for all eternity. That is the true God. And we were made to be in fellowship with that God. We were made to be known by each of those members of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, we were, we were made for that. Jesus, or excuse me, Moses in the book of Genesis, as he's recording the creation account, in Genesis 1, 26, said this, and note the plural language. He said that God said this, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Like God was creating us from the very beginning to be known by him and to be wrapped up in the love that he shares, that they share. Sometimes I don't know what to say. He, they, like that, that they share together for all eternity, Father, Son, and Spirit. We were made to enjoy that, to be wrapped in to that relationship. But even though we were made for that, left to ourselves, we do not get to enjoy that. We are not invited into that any longer, left to ourselves. 
Adam and Eve very quickly in the Garden of Eden where God walked with them in the cool of the day, where he would talk to them like I talk to you. Like there, there was this intimacy that they had with God in that garden, that perfect Garden of Eden. But Adam and Eve sinned, and what did God do? He laid a curse upon them, and then what did he do on top of that? He made them leave, didn't he? He kicked them out of the garden and put flaming swords there and angels to guard it and said, you cannot come back into this place with me anymore. And from that moment, fellowship with this trinity, with the triune God, was broken for all of us. It was, it was something we could not enjoy, we could not gain, and we are left to ourselves. We will always be on the outside looking in. We, we will always look at the Father, Son, and Spirit, even as they tell us about themselves, and have no way to get back into that, no way to be loved by them again because of our sin. We've all had groups of friends or people that we see loving each other and enjoying each other that we just want to be part of. We, we want to be part of that family or part of that team or part of that company, and, but we can't figure out a way in. With God, it is impossible for us to get in left to ourselves. I, some of you are in kind of a Christmas mode already, I've noticed, with posts on social media and whatnot. I don't know if any of you have started watching Christmas movies yet. Uh, to some people, that's blasphemy to do that before Thanksgiving. But my favorite Christmas movie, my favorite movie actually of all time, is Home Alone uh, with uh, Macaulay Culkin in it. And I often replay that. I have literally every line in that movie memorized. And I was replaying it in my head. And there's this one little scene in it for whatever reason that stuck out in my mind this uh, this week. And if you don't know the story, it's a little grade school guy. His name's Kevin McAllister. He gets left home alone as his parents go to Paris, France on a trip. And he's left by himself. And he's fending his house off from robbers, all these things. I'll watch it with you sometime. Uh, But uh, there's this little throwaway scene where Kevin is walking down the street. And it's around Christmas time and snow's falling and whatnot. And there's this big window on the front of a house. And he looks into it. And his family's gone. Like his family's broken. Literally in the moment, they're not even in the same country. But he looks in this window and he sees this family like a... Norman Rockwell type of family that's loving each other and opening presents and people opening the door and welcoming their, their loved ones into the home. And he just kind of stops there. Not a word is spoken, but you know what's trying to be communicated is that he wants that. But he can't have it. Like, it's gone. Like, it, it's impossible. And there's this longing in our human heart to be loved by fellow human beings, but that is to point us to this longing we have to be loved by God, to get to enjoy the love that Father, Son, and Spirit have with each other that we were made to enjoy, but it's impossible left to ourselves to get it, to be part of it, to, to be wrapped into them. But thank God that He came to us. Thank God that he saw us in that condition and he said, I want you to come back into this. I want you to rejoin us. I want to send my son, Jesus, and then I'm going to send the spirit to work upon your heart and change you so that you can be back with us. Praise God that he did not leave us in that condition. You see glimpses of that in this text. You see glimpses of Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit and what he's going to do to bring that about. What he's going to do to apply the work Jesus is going to do on the cross, to apply that to our hearts and bring us back into relationship with Father, Son, and Spirit. So I want you to put yourself for a moment into the shoes of these disciples. They know this story that I've been telling of how human beings were kicked out of the garden, how fellowship with God was broken. They know that story. But they also know Jesus, and they've started to believe and to know that he is God. That he's God the Son who has come into the world, come onto this little planet we call Earth, uh, in this little solar system, like that he has entered in, God has become man, in order to restore what's been broken, in order to pay the penalty for sin. So it's, it's this taste for them of, man, this is getting to be right again. Like It's like God has come to us, we're kind of getting to enjoy fellowship with God, and then he's about to leave. He's about to go upon the cross and be raised from the dead, but then he's telling them, I'm going back to the Father. And you could see how in their minds that this would be perplexing, that they're starting to think, wait, I thought like you were coming to us. Like I thought this was starting to mend what's broken and like let us back into relationship with God, yet you're going to leave. 
Is this just like a flash in the pan, like kind of a, a hope to get to to get riled up within us and then just dash it on the rocks like a wave? Like what what is going on? And Jesus very clearly, although he does it somewhat poetically, tells them, no, like I am about to leave to go to God the Father, but I'm not the end-all, be-all of the Trinity. Like I, God is still going to come and be with you, but it's going to be in the person of the Holy Spirit. And let me tell you about him. And so he does. He, he says things to them like verse 18. He says, I won't leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He says in verse 20, look at verse 20. He says that in that day, you'll know that I am in my Father, like I'm going to be united with him. And then there's not a period there, is there? He says, and you in me, and I in you. And so there's there's this wrapping up of us into that love. I'm united with the Father, and you're united with me. And so he, he gives them this clue, this clear indicator that they are going to be started to be wrapped up into the love that exists between God. He says in verse 21 that those who love him will be loved by God the Father. So it's not just them and Jesus. He's saying, as you love me, God the Father is going to love you. And in verse 23, he, having just said, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, the famous text where Jesus has just told them, I go to prepare a place for you. Remember that text? He, he's saying, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. Having just said that in the same, like probably five minutes after that in real time, look at what he says in verse 23. He says, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him. And make our home with him. And so he's saying, even as I'm going up to heaven, in a real sense, in another sense, me and the Father are going to come to you. And the way that that happens is by the coming of the Holy Spirit, by the giving of the Holy Spirit that Jesus mentions a few times in this passage. And there is much that could be said about him in this passage. But I want to just point out a few things of who he is and what Jesus says he's going to do. You notice a few times in here, in verses 16 and then in verse 26, Jesus called the Holy Spirit by a certain name. Some translations say the helper. Your, some of your other translations may call him the counselor, the comforter, the advocate. Some call it, This is a very complex word that uh, can mean all of those things. Uh, that, but Jesus calls him this, this one who's going to come and stand up for us, this one who's going to intercede for us, who's going to have compassion upon us. There's all of these ideas wrapped up in just that one little word. And he, he, he says in verse 17, note this, what he says about the Holy Spirit to his disciples in that room, talking about the Spirit. He says, you know him. He dwells with you. That's what he's saying about the current situation they're in. But then he says, and will be in you. And so in the Old Testament, even before these days that we're reading about, the Spirit of God had at points and times come and filled a person, had enabled them to do certain things, but it was usually for a short season, for a specific task. But he was still at work with God's people. Yet Jesus is saying, that's not enough anymore. It's not just that the Spirit's going to kind of be alongside you and kind of working in certain ways. He's going to take up residence in you. He's going to completely change you from the inside out, and we're sending him to do it. Me and God the Father, we are sending him to do just that, to not just be with you, but to be in you. And then in verse 16, if you back up a little bit, how long is that going to last? He says, I will give you, or the Father will give you another helper to be with you forever. Like when the Holy Spirit, when God by the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence within you and starts to wrap you up in the love that Father, Son, and Spirit have enjoyed for eternity, He doesn't just do that for a season and then drop you. Like when the Holy Spirit is given to a person, when He takes up residence, if He has taken up residence in you, He will not leave you. Like He comes to live within us forever, to change us permanently, to permanently wrap us into the love of God. How does he do that, though, in real time? What does this coming of the Spirit actually look like? I'll point you to the title Jesus uses for him in verse 17. Did you notice this? He used a few names for the Holy Spirit here. But here he calls him the Spirit of Truth. The Spirit 
of truth. The way that the Holy Spirit, and Jesus said this, that he's going to come and work upon a person's heart is through the truth. He says down in verse 26 that what this Holy Spirit is going to do, the spirit of truth is going to do, at least for the disciples in that room, he says that he will teach them all things and bring to their remembrance all that he has said to them. And that's a very unique thing that he's saying to John and to Peter and to these other men who are in this room who are going to be the apostles who take the message of Jesus, who even record the very scriptures that we have about Jesus. He's saying the Holy Spirit's going to help you remember the things I've said, and he's going to guide you in recording them and to bring to your remembrance what I've said. He's going to teach you all things in a sense so you can teach others. And let me tell you this, the very fact that we have this book of the Bible we call John is evidence that the Spirit did that, that the Holy Spirit did come and help John start to connect dots, not to make up a story, but to understand what he had heard, to understand what he had seen Jesus do and what he'd heard Jesus say. The Spirit gave John, he gave Peter, he gave these other apostles understanding so they could convey the truth to us. And now as that truth comes to us, the same spirit that inspired them to write this, record it for us, he, we'll see this in future texts. He's the one that convinces our hearts to believe it. He's the one who gives us eyes to see, yes, this is true. Like this is the God that exists. This is the Savior who's come to you. This is how you are to respond to him. And so Jesus, even though he says in verse 30, I'm about to leave, I'm not going to speak to you much longer He says that in verse 30. That just means through his vocal cords there on earth. He's not going to speak to them much longer. But by his Holy Spirit, he is going to speak ongoingly, increasingly to to people, uh, to his disciples and to people around the world for all time. So he returns. And so that that is how the Spirit does the work is through truth. It's inspiring the truth that the apostles wrote for us and then giving us hearts to believe it. And that is how he comes and works upon us and starts to unite us with himself and with the Son and with God the Father. There are many worldviews that are competing in our world that will tell us different things we were ultimately made for. Like what's the peak of existence that we were made for that we can enjoy as human beings? And they w- I, this goes without saying, but none of those are going to be them saying that you get to enjoy God himself. Secular thought, even if you don't think of it as a religion, is going to teach you that the greatest enjoyment, the greatest aim of your life is to find fulfillment in the life here and now. To get as much as you can, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. To find your fulfillment as a human being is ultimately found just in the things of this earth. And, the, and those who are secularists will teach you to pursue that as your highest aim, your highest end. Some will have a little more of a religious bent to them. Buddhism, for example, will tell you that your end goal, the greatest way that you can reach peak existence as a human being, is not to get wrapped up in God, but to get wrapped up in the universe. Like some impersonal force that they call nirvana like that that you're to escape yourself and to be elevated into this existence where you in a sense get dissolved into the universe and where you lose consciousness and you just get absorbed into the universe you can see how uh, the christian view of, of how we are to be wrapped up into the love of god the father could get distorted right and and form that worldview of, of getting wrapped up into the universe Mormonism, if you want to get into what some people think of as Christianity, although it is far from it, Mormonism will tell people that your ultimate aim, your highest uh, goal as a human being is to someday rule your own universe, to become a god yourself who can rule over your own universe, your own world. But the Christian view is none of that. For the Christian view, our highest aim, our highest good is to be wrapped up into the love of God himself. The love of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That is what we were made for. Yet even as Christians, even in Orthodox Christianity, there's sometimes where we think that our greatest aim, our greatest good that we can gain in life is something less than that. Like we sometimes think that the, the greatest thing that I can long for, that I was made for, is to not suffer. Like, if I could just, like, that is, like, heaven to me. Like, just to have no suffering, no pain. And we think of our greatest good as the absence of something. 
the removal of hardship, the removal of death, suffering, pain, mistreatment. The Bible and Jesus will point us to a greater hope, a greater goal of our existence. Some of us think of heaven, physical place of heaven, as our end goal, our greatest good. That's what my greatest longing for is to just make it to heaven, make it to be part of that new earth that Jesus sets up someday, as if just being in that place is what I'm made for. Being in that place of peace and calm and tranquility and joy, like that's what I'm created for. Some people, I'm guilty of this, some people will think that our ultimate good, our ultimate fulfillment as a human being, the greatest thing we can possibly imagine is the forgiveness of our sin. Like that's what, and that is true. That is what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. But the forgiveness of our sin is not an end and of itself. Like the forgiveness of our sin and the the high price that was paid by Jesus was to not just get sin off our record, but to get us to God. And those are very different things. Like, one is centered on me and getting my record clear, vindicating my name, making sure I have no suffering, and the other is about God. Like, are you rejoicing that you get brought to him? I had a passage that's resonating in my mind last night from First Peter, another man who would have been in this room. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18. It's a wonderful verse if you're seeking to share uh, the gospel with people. He said this, he said, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And listen to what he says. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The disciples knew that. The apostles knew that. And we know that as we read the scripture, that the end goal, the highest aim of my existence as a human being is not just to make it to heaven, It's not just to have my sins forgiven, not just to not have suffering anymore, but it is to know God and be known by God and to get wrapped up into that loving relationship that Father, Son, and Spirit have enjoyed for eternity. When we think of these lesser things but good things as our ultimate fulfillment, we're kind of like... I'm in Christmas mode, maybe too early. We're kind of at, like we, when we see kids open Christmas gifts at, uh, in a few weeks from now, we all know this, the story of when a kid, and see it play out, when a kid opens a really nice present, like that you paid a bunch of money for, you thought well through it, and especially the younger they are, they open up that present, and they take the stuff out of the box, and then they just play with the box. Like, they, 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 it might be a nice-looking box. It may be a great box, like, that did what it was supposed to do. But the point of it was to deliver the thing inside. And the point of the cross, the point of the removal of our sin, the point of the forgiveness that God grants to us is to get us God. Not just to, like, revel, I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven, but say, I get God. Like, the God, Father, Son, and Spirit who've loved each other for eternity, I get wrapped up in their love that will never end, that will never disappoint, and I get to love them back. Like, that is the greatest gift. And in this passage, Jesus calls us to that. He, he reminds us of that gift that can be given to us, of starting to be wrapped up in the love of the Trinity. But what we see in this passage is that when we come to be loved by the Trinity, by the members of the Trinity, we cannot stay the same. Like, we cannot just stay unaffected, stay unchanged, untransformed in our lives. There's a change that is going to be worked in us that's not optional. It's to become true in our life. And so I want to close by showing how Jesus would call us to respond, how he called his disciples to respond to this. The first thing that I'll point you to is the call to believe. If you look at verse 29, Jesus says, Now I've told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. This is not the first time, this is not the last time in this book of the Bible that we see that the end goal of all that took place, and even the recording of this, is for us to believe. It's a very simple idea, but it is on John's heart, it's on Jesus' heart, that we are to believe the good news of Jesus. That is the core response that's called forth from this. We are to believe the good news of Christ, that he came for us, that he died upon the cross for our sins, and that he was raised from the dead, and he invites us into relationship with God. We are to believe that. 
And although there may not be many of us in the room, I wanted to point out to those who may be skeptics in the room, who, who have a hard time buying into this, have a hard time believing this, because I know it's a hard thing to believe, that, that this man 2,000 years ago died upon the cross, that he was raised from the dead, and that his life and death and resurrection has eternal consequences for you. I want to point out to you, we haven't gotten to talk about this in other parts of the scriptures in John, but a few times now Jesus has said, I'm telling you this now, disciples, like before it happens, like before I'm crucified, before I'm raised from the dead, I'm telling you it now, I'm kind of calling my shot, so to speak, so that when it does happen, you'll know this is no fluke. This is no accident. This is what I was sent to do. And there is nobody. Like, we can call our shots on many things and kind of finagle situations. We could even call our own shots, so to speak, on getting ourselves killed if we want to get morbid. Like, we could predict that. We could try to ensure that that happens. But Jesus said, not only am I going to be crucified outside Jerusalem, but watch this. I am going to be brought back to life, never to die again. Jesus said that before it happened. He knew it. And if, if that is true, if you could entertain that idea, and there are records of this that others write as well, that that was true, and Jesus was saying it publicly, people started to hear him call his shot. If that is true, do you not think there is merit to who he said he is? Like to what he said is true about God, what he said is true about himself, what he said is true about you. If there is a man who called his shot on being put to death and then raised back to life, never to die again, I want to listen to him. I want to lean into him and what he has said, whether it like pushes me back at first and challenges me, I'm leaning in to what he says and I am starting to believe the truth about who he is and what he's done. That is the first response that is called forth. And if we do that, and we put our trust, our belief in him, we are wrapped up into this loving relationship with the Trinity. And what Jesus says needs to be true of us is that in response to that, that we obey. Did you note that theme running through here a few different times, that we obey God as we come into relationship with him? Look, It happens in the beginning, middle, and end of this text. I'll show you this, and then we'll be done. At the beginning of this text, Jesus is talking to his disciples the ones there in the room, and he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Just matter of factly saying, you guys in the room right here, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. Love and obedience go together. They, they cannot be separated. He says that to his disciples. Then in the middle of the passage, look at verse 23. That other Judas had asked this question, and then uh, Jesus answers him and says this. And this is going to talk about all people. It says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. This is talking about any person. That includes you. Like if you say that you love Christ, Christ calls you to obey him. Like he calls you, just as he obeyed the Father, we're going to see in a second, he calls you to obey him out of love, to, to do what he calls you to do. And then at the end of the passage, we see that Jesus isn't just asking us to do something and obeying that he's not willing to do himself. And at the very end of this text, verse 31, so we've seen it beginning, middle, and then Jesus says, I do as the Father has commanded me. So he says he obeys him so that the world may know that I love the Father. And so he's again connecting his obedience even to the Father with his love for the Father. He's saying over and over for his disciples, for all of us, for himself, when you love someone in this way, you obey them. There, there is this temptation we have, especially when we grow up around the church, to say, oh, I love God, I love Jesus, like I love the Holy Spirit. And then we flagrantly sometimes disobey the very clear things they've told us to do. Very clear things they've called us to do, and we just chalk it up to, well, I'm forgiven for that. Like I can just kind of live how I want. And Jesus says, no. Like when you are, when the Trinity, when they love and delight in each other, they don't pick and choose what they do for one another. They perfectly love and submit and honor to each other. And when we get wrapped up into that, we no longer have the option to just say, well, I'll do that, but not that. Like, I'll, I'll, that's cool with me, but this is way too hard, and I don't like that, so I'm going to do my own thing. We are called to obey out of love, out of a gratefulness for what they have done for us. Obedience flows from love. There are hard commands that Jesus has given to us through his word. There's commands to honor our father and our mother for the kids that are in the room. 
which commands to husbands in the room to love your wives as Christ loved the church, there's commands to wives to honor your husbands, there's commands to pray for the people who are in authority over us in government, there's commands to keep our life free from the love of money and to be content with what we have, there's, there's commands to flee youthful lusts, there's commands forbidding gossip and foul talk coming from out our mouth. There, we are commanded to encourage each other and build each other up. There are so many commands that he's given us. And Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey. If you will not to get my love, but because you already have it. And you're being wrapped up into the love of Father, Son, and Spirit. Thanksgiving time is coming up. And I, I want to leave you with one uh, command God has given in his word and that's from 1st Peter chapter 4 verse 9 and this has to do with the Trinity uh, and how the Trinity relates to us and wrapping us up in their love in 1st Peter chapter 4 verse 9 Peter said this show hospitality to one another without grumbling uh, God is a hospitable God is he not if you think about Father, Son, and Spirit, they, they could have just remained a perfect unity and, and left uh, either never created us or just left us apart from them. But they invited us in. They went to great lengths to invite us into their loving relationship and to, to be loved by them and to love them in return. They went to the point of sending Christ to die and be raised. And they are a hospitable be, uh, being, an entity, an essence as God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we as their people, as the ones who love them, we should be the same. Like we should be people who are welcoming in people into our church family. We have eyes to see who's new here. How can I love them? But also people who are welcoming others into our homes. People who are looking out for people in our neighborhoods or our social context to see who is not loved by others. And I don't want them to be Kevin McAllister standing out on the street. I want to invite them into our love that we share as a family and as believers. That's why we're teaching on this with the well this school year on hospitality because God's a hospitable God and inviting us in. And we need to be that way ourselves as well. And we need to be people who are inviting others, not just into relationship with us, but into relationship with God. That's their ultimate end, is not just to be friends with us, but to be friends with God.